All right. Hey, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. If you were with us last week, we actually started this sermon series on how to love. So turn to your neighbor, high five them, and say how to love. Can you do that real quick? Yes. Um, and we've been exploring. We actually, last week, we looked at the greatest commandment that Jesus gives when he encapsulates what is the greatest commandment. And when he's talking about the greatest commandment, really he's talking about what is the good life? What is the, the thing that we're searching for? Should I use a different mic? Yeah? Is that okay? Someone said yes, please. Should I go back to this one? Yeah? Check, check. Is that better? Okay, sweet. All right. Well, um, where was I? Uh, yes, I was talking about, yeah, last week we talked about the great commandment and the greatest commandment and how the greatest commandment was actually an echo to what had been taught in the Hebrew scriptures about loving the Lord your God with everything that you have and centering around this God. And what does it look like for us to keep God at the center of everything that we do, to love him more than anything else, whether it's our careers or other things that we might put ahead of him. And so today we actually look at the second part of the greatest commandment uh, that Jesus teaches about. So let's look here, Luke chapter 10, look at what it says. Uh, it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to, the, to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind. Remember, that's an echo to the Shema Israel from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which was kind of the centralizing command that the people of Israel would constantly center around. But notice what Jesus says. He, he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, he adds this part that inextricably linked to actually loving God above everything else is to actually love one's neighbor. In other words, the relationships that we have and that we keep actually matter. Uh, it's not only about cultivating this relationship with God above, but actually cultivating life-giving relationships and loving relationships with those around us. Now, this is actually also another echo from the Old Testament scriptures. Check this out. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against everyone among your people or anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, see, what Jesus is basically doing is he's taking all the teachings that the people of Israel had come up with um, and had presented to their people about what it means to follow God, and he's encapsulating it, and he's essentially saying that fundamentally what it means then to, to pursue et the eternal life, to pursue the good life, to follow the greatest command is basically it comes down to love, loving God as well as loving your neighbor, that love is actually at the core of the Christian faith. Now, many today, um, uh, research has been done about what people think, especially those outside of the church community, about what they think of Christians. And two common words that are used to describe those who, um, believe, you know, who come across Christians is judgmental and hypocritical. Um, I mean, could you imagine if that somehow, the tenor of that changed so that it wasn't judgmental or, or hypocritical, that Christians weren't just known for that, but rather Christians were known for their love. Could you imagine, like, you were walking into your office or the schools that you go to, and that the way that people talked about Christians, the way that they knew these Christians, was this word love. And yet Jesus here, he teaches basically how love is core to everything that we do. Now, for some of you who might not be a Christian, you might actually be surprised <laughs> that this is what we believe, 
that love, loving God and loving our neighbors is actually core to everything that we do. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who's one of the earliest Christian followers, who would basically be explaining to others what it means to love God. Look at, in this very famous chapter on love, what he writes about love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, check this out. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels... In other words, if I somehow am able to have these languages that I use that comes from heaven or be able to communicate with other people, but I do not have love, then I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. Could you imagine this? Someone with such incredible supernatural ability. And yet, uh, if I have uh, and if I have a faith that can move mountains to do miracles, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, to be honest with you, honestly, as a pastor of this church community, I'm constantly praying that we as a church community would be a people who lean into the power of God, that we would see supernatural things happen, that God would awaken our church and catalyze revival amongst us, you know? I mean, there's this longing for me to see miracle and healings happen. But oftentimes I pray for that more than praying for us just to be a loving community. I mean, therein lies kind of a signal of where the values that I have, the values of our world, oftentimes, I mean, here, here's basically what Paul is saying. Of all the things that you can do, of all the gifts, of all the extraordinary things that God can do, of all the supernatural ways that God can move, I mean, of all the cool ways, I mean, let's be honest, these are way cooler than love. And yet, well, here's what Paul is saying, because embedded right here in this letter to the church in Corinth is this teaching where just before this, he's taught about spiritual gifts He's taught about these supernatural ways of using one's gifts and abilities for God. And in the middle of it, he basically says, hey, I want you to know something. The world around us, we might, they might value gifts, extraordinary ability, supernatural uh, um, talents. And yet, if it's void of love, you're missing everything. Now, Paul actually continues on. Look at how he starts to define love. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, some of you who aren't even Christian, maybe you've heard this passage before because you've attended a wedding or something and you've heard this explanation of what, about what love is. But Paul is basically illustrating just with great detail, what is this love thing like? Now, a mentor of mine, he once did this exercise with me where he said, I want you to replace the word love with your name. And so here's what it looked like. <laughs> As I was wrestling with this, this is what it looks like. Drew is patient. Drew is kind. Drew does not envy. Drew does not boast. Drew is not proud. Drew does not dishonor others. Drew is not self-seeking. Drew is not easily angered. Drew keeps no record of wrongs. Drew does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Drew always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. My wife actually had this framed and put it up. No, I'm just kidding. She <laughs> just as a reminder... But, but one of the reasons why this exercise was so helpful was because it was like, whoa, hey, that's kind of personal. Actually, is this true of me? 
Is it true that I'm patient, that I'm kind, that I don't envy, that I don't boast? I'm not easily angered. Is it true of me? In many ways, even this exercise of, of seeing how, like, gosh, I could preach incredible sermons, be this incredibly charismatic leader, and our church can be do all doing all sorts of dynamic things. And yet Paul is saying, but if we've missed out on love, if I myself am, a, am an unloving person, then I've actually kind of missed the point. I could be someone who has... Again, speaks and prays for hours on end. And yet the way that my wife or my children experience me is this easily angered, impatient, boastful person that I've kind of missed the point. See, but it's not just me, right? Because here Paul is talking about how love is central to everything that we do. But, I mean, check this out. What if we included your name? In fact, you can do a little audit yourself. Add your name to whether you're patient, whether you're kind, whether you do not envy, whether you do not boast, whether you are not proud, and so on and so forth. It becomes a little bit more personal, and yet it gets at the heart. Now, here's the thing. Some of us, we bring our credentials, we bring our degrees, we bring our earning potential. All the things that we hang our hat on about how extraordinary we are in our separate fields or how much money we make or our careers or how good we look. And yet fundamentally, when it comes down to it, what Paul is saying, what Jesus was teaching was that ultimately it comes down to love. Do you and I, do we inhabit a loving presence with others? Now, a loving presence doesn't necessarily mean that everything goes and I love everything about the person. No, instead what it means is that somehow, I am someone who has a solid sense of self, who can begin to be a person who is kind to others, as we'll see in a moment. You know, yesterday, I was, uh, our family and I, we went to the U.S. Open is kicking off, and so the U.S. Open, the tennis tournament over at Flushing Meadow Park, there's actually a free family fun day, and we heard that Dude Perfect, uh, which is on YouTube, was actually performing live, and if you could go to Louis Armstrong Stadium, you can go there, and so our family went and I was like, we should scope out seats as early as possible. So we went to scope out seats, and, and I, was, I was so, like, kind of dead set on finding the best seats. So we got, like, third row, but I noticed the sun was, like, we were in the shade, and so I was, I was kind of, like, looking out for where, where are we going to be in the shade for this show? So we, we got these seats. They were incredible seats, but we're sitting there for a couple of hours. Now, slowly, though, I noticed that the sun started creeping, you had this experience before where you're like, oh, no, what's happening? And the sun started creeping. And then I noticed that we could be in the line of the sun soon, especially when the show starts. So what I did was uh, my son and my nephew were there. And I said, hey, guys, why don't you guys save these seats? I'm going to go over to that side over there where it, it looks like it's shaded. And, uh, and so I can reserve another set of seats there while you guys have this lockdown. So they sat there. Then I went over to the, to the shaded seats. And I, I found five seats in a row. And I was like, okay. All right, I'm going to save these seats. My wife ends up joining my son and my, do- and my nephew at the seats along with my daughter, Avery. And I'm noticing kind of where we're sitting. I'm safely in the shade. And Tina calls me up and she says, hey, just come back here. These seats are way better. Like, it's going to be fine. So I was like, oh, okay. All right, you sure? I don't be, like, these seats, they're not as good, but we're in the shade. She's like, no, yeah, just come back. It's like, okay, fine. 
So I, I get there, and I, I come back, and I sit down. And again, it's my nephew, my two kids, and my wife over there. And right as I sit down, I feel the sun kind of on my neck. And I, I look up, and the sun, sure enough, has creeped over kind of the stadium roof where we're just waiting, and there's still like 30 minutes left before the show starts. So, like, I feel it. And this, this, this tinge on my, my, like my neck became, becomes like this kindling fire within my soul. And I just, I look over at Tina, and I'm like, hey, the sun's out. Did you notice? And I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I'm angry. I, I want to blame her. I'm like, I can't believe this. What are you doing? But like, I'm trying to keep it together because my son, my daughter, my nephew are there. I'm just like, hey, what do you think? Remember we had those seats? You know, I like, so I'm like, I'm trying to communicate this. And Tina's just like, Tina's like, hey, just enjoy this show. Just relax, okay? And I'm just like, I'm like, okay, I'll have a good time. <laughs> and so like now, the, the son, and, and so I'm like, I'm trying to hold it in. And then what ends up happening is the sun takes this turn, and then we're in the shade again. Oh. Yeah, it was incredible. It was like a miracle of God. God knew I was preaching this sermon today, and so all of a sudden we're in the shade. And so it was this moment. It was so funny because here I was, like, all of a sudden the, the shade comes over us again, and I look over at Tina, and she's looking right at me. She's like, she's like hey, the sun's gone. Did you notice? So mature, you know? <laughs> and it was, it was like one of these moments, and I was like, oh, my goodness, here I was. Kind of this impatient, like, complaining, bitter kind of guy. And here I am, I'm going to preach this message on love. Ah, preaching on it is way easier than living it. There's this quote from Theodore Dostoevsky where he says, Loving in reality is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to loving in dreams. I mean, isn't it true? One of the most difficult challenges is actually to live this out. Am I someone who is patient, is kind? I do not envy. I'm not boastful. I don't keep record, a record of wrongs. You know what's so startling, though? Because I'm, I'm, I'm giving you examples of loving even the place, person closest to me, my first neighbor, my wife, my children. I, I'm talking about a, a love that should come naturally to all of us. And yet Jesus actually takes it a little bit deeper. Check out what happens as he continues in the story. Look, it says, but the expert in the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. So Jesus is now presenting this story as a parable, which again, if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard this parable before of the Good Samaritan. Check it out. Look at how subversive it is. It says, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, in other words, a religious clergy person like Drew Yun. <laughs> happened to be going down the same road, and notice this little detail is given. And when he saw the man, in other words, it's not like the person was, Drew was walking down the road as this religious clergy person, and it's not like I was walking along the road and just kind of ignored him or missed him or I was thinking about something else. I actually saw him. He passed by on the other side. 
So too, a Levite from the priestly class, when he came to the place and saw him, there it is again, the note is there. He actually sees him. But instead of doing anything, passed by on the other side. Now here's where things get so subversive because it says, but a Samaritan. Now back then, you gotta understand. Again, some of us may not know the ancient context of a Samaritan. A Samaritan was, especially to the people of Israel, they were seen as so other. They were the people who were kind of like the enemy. They were the heretics. They were the half-breeds. They were the people that no one should listen to Samaritans. In fact, we should avoid the area where Samaritans are. And Jesus, in this subversive way, the Levite, the priest, the people that you think should really get what true religion is all about. Of course, they're the ones who see the man, but they miss it. And yet it's a Samaritan, the most unexpected person in the story. Now, here's the thing. If I were to ask you, right, today, in today's polarized context, there are so many people that each one of us, we can say they are the other because they believe in this or because they support this movement or this political party. In fact, if there was someone that you could think of that like, is like your gravest enemy <laughs> or someone that represents who you would consider being so opposite of what you believe to be true, and you insert them into this story as the Samaritan, that's essentially what Jesus is doing. Now think about it for yourself, whoever that person is. Now say that person's, per- no, I'm just kidding, don't say that person's name out loud. But I mean, just think about that, how, how subversive and like, how recoiling it would be to hear this. The Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And look at what happens. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for every expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell at the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, could not even bring himself to say the Samaritan. (laughs) Instead, look at what he says. He says, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Now, this is stunning because here Jesus is presenting an ethic of what it means life with God is like. Because what it means to love a neighbor as oneself, it means that neighborly love extends kindness to all people. Oh, yeah, what about those people that you disagree with? What about those people who are doing things that you don't think they should be doing? No, no, no. Loving neighborly loves means extending kindness to all people. I mean, do you get how subversive this is? Do you get how crazy this is? When Jesus is teaching this, he's presenting a way of love that is so different than the normal kind of ways of love that we might think of today or even in the ancient world. Anyone can talk about loving your spouse or the people close to you, loving your family, loving your tribe, loving your nation, but to love Someone that you despise or that you think is so different. Do you see how radical this is? Now, again, this doesn't mean what Jesus is saying is, hey, as as someone who is to love everyone, it doesn't mean that you capitulate or that you do things that you don't want to do. Jesus was known, what's so fascinating about Jesus, he was a friend of sinners, and yet Jesus was someone who was sinless. This is what we believe. Jesus was able to somehow show love and kindness to all people and yet be distinct as to who he was. He was both holy and loving. 
And so when Jesus is talking about neighborly love, he's talking about this dynamic of being loving, not compromising, but being loving, being kind to all. And that is stunning. Like I mentioned, what would it look like for us if the reputation of Christians was that, oh, those Christians, they're just so full of abounding generosity and love. How different would that be? Now, here's the reality. I realize you're even hearing this and you're just kind of like, this sounds overwhelming to me. I'm having a hard enough time loving my spouse or loving my kid or loving my parents or whatever it might be. Like now you're telling me to love all people, to show kindness to all people. That is overwhelming. You know what's so, what I'm so thankful for about this story is kind of how the story ends, right? Because look at how the story ends as a Samaritan helps this person in need. Samaritan traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Notice what it says. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Notice the man, the, the good Samaritan, actually has limits. There are limits to his love. Uh, oftentimes when I hear this story, I, I just get so overwhelmed and I think, man, I just need to serve and love everybody to the extreme. And then I get exhausted. And so instead of doing anything, I'd rather just watch Netflix and then forget about it. And yet, here, the example of the Good Samaritan, it's not like the Good Samaritan basically bandages up the man and basically says, I will now welcome you into my home and I will take care of you and pay for all of your expenses for the next 30 years of your life. But oftentimes, for some reason, my mind goes to, oh, no, I can't help this person because it's basically going to mean that I will be drained of any kind of reserve or self-respect that I have. But instead, what happens to the man? The Good Samaritan actually has a boundary kind of love. As a finite human being, he shows wisdom and restraint in what he can do. One author and pastor puts it this way. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Each one of us, we may not be able to save the entire world because we're all limited human beings. But you and I, we could do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. In fact, the nonprofit um, that we partner with regularly, Jane Yoon, is, one of the, is the executive director of Do For One. It's an organization that um, pairs people with different relationships with mental and physical disabilities in lateral friendship. And, and the idea, it actually, the title of the organization actually comes from this phrase, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. May not be able to serve and, and save the entire world, but if just each one of us we just made one new friend. What would that look like? I mean, and that's the point of this nonprofit organization. And in the same way, one of the things that I find so beautiful about this Good Samaritan is it's a boundaried kind of love. It's a way in which the Good Samaritan's not completely put out by helping this person, but instead has a way of loving the person as much as they can with the limits that they have as a human being. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Yes, it's true. We can't save and love every person to the same degree. But you can start. You can start with your neighbor who is closest to you. If that's a person, if that's my spouse, if that's my family, what does it look like for me to be a loving presence, to show kindness to all, but to be a loving presence, especially to those who are near me? 
Now, as it relates to this insight, though, of, of, of boundaried love, here's what's so interesting about the commandment that's given that people often miss out on, right? Because the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with everything that you have, your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But notice, the second part of the commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you have to have the kind of self that loves yourself in such a manner that that love that you have for yourself is worth giving away. And here's what's often missing when it comes to all of the mixed ways that we tend to love other people. Some people who don't have a solid sense of self, I know for a big part of my own life, I really didn't love myself, but people experienced me as a loving person. Do you know why? I loved other people, not as I love myself, but I loved other people so that they would love me. And then when people stopped loving me, then I'd get angry and upset. I'd be like, oh my goodness, after all I've done for you, how could you do this for me? Why don't you love me back? Why don't you care about me? After everything that I've sacrificed... And here's what I realized. I, I wasn't really loving out of a full self. I was loving out of a self that was so insecure that I needed to help other people so that they would love me. I remember talking once to this one couple that I was doing marriage counseling with. And as we were reflecting on this passage, to love your neighbor as yourself, the spouse actually ended up, she said to her husband, she said it straight to his face, she said, honestly, if you're going to love me the way you love yourself, I'd rather you didn't love me. Because I see how hard you are on yourself. I see how unforgiving you can be towards yourself. I see how you don't take care of yourself. I'd rather you didn't love me that way. See, the only way that we can freely give love is when we've actually experienced a full kind of self-love. You know, when, when you ride an airplane and you get on the airplane and the instructions are given, and, and they, they often say, if you're, if you're traveling with a child, uh, before you put the mask on them, what do they say? Put the mask on yourself. Because what good is it for me to try to save someone else when I am dying? See, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's talking about someone who has a self. Someone who has a self. Now, here's the beautiful message of Christianity. See, the beautiful message of Christianity is in Philippians chapter 2, it says that Jesus emptied himself, taking on the very nature of a servant. And why does Jesus do this? See, Jesus empties himself to come in the form of a man to come and live and die on behalf of you and I so that our personhood, our own sense of self could find a security and love in a God of heaven and earth who created everything, the universe and everything in it, that this God, his love for us is so full and free that when we 
can find ourselves lost in the love of a God who would empty himself, we actually find ourselves. We actually have a sense of security and firmness and purpose. We actually have a sense of belovedness, of belongingness, of security. We actually have a self that can love others. See, Jesus empties himself so that we might have a self. See, and the message of Christianity is that we are people who are deeply loved. And this is why the Christian story has always been. Here's what love is. Love is not that you loved God. Instead, what does it say in 1 John? It's that God loved us first. And when we can actually sit under that love to warm ourselves at the fire of this kind of love, it's only then that we can begin to start to love other people. Why? Because we're now not loving people so that they'll love us. Instead, we're just overflowing with love that's been given to us so that we can now begin to love others as we love ourselves.